So, so we started on Sunday and we let you know we're speaking about this, this amazing paradox, dying to live. And remember, paradox is an apparent contradiction. It looks like two opposite terms that can't possibly stay together. But there's so much truth in this, in this phrase, dying to live. And our key scripture for this morning is Galatians 2 verse 20. And on the next slide, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now I've underlined on that slide there the aspects that I would maybe say the dying aspects of the scripture. Being crucified with Christ. How many of you know crucifixion was very much an act of dying, okay? It's no longer I who live. Hey, he's talking about dying here. But Christ who lives in me, and the last line I've underlined, the last few words, who loved me and gave himself for me. Gave himself for me is, is about dying. It's a life that is, that is laid down. I, mean, I remember Heidi Baker, he always uses this phrase, and, and literally a song was written about it, that she's a laid down lover of Jesus. A laid down lover of Jesus. And the paradox is this, that in laying your life down for Christ, you find life. The world's message is, gimme, 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 my name is Jimmy. Gather, 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 gather things, look after yourself, you know, just pamper yourself, you are number one. The paradox of the Christian gospel is, as you lay down your life for Christ and for others, you find life, you find meaning, you find purpose. I remember years ago, it was a book uh, written, and it was entitled uh, Half Time. I think the guy's name was Bob Buford who wrote this book, uh, Half Time. And this book was, it was such an interesting book, because his paradigm was that there are many people in the world that have been successful. And what is successful? When they were young, they set some goals, and they achieved their goals, and many of them were success in terms of the world standards, you know, achieving fame and fortune and, you know, those kind of things which the world defines as success. But the book Half Time was written by Bob Buford with this intention because so many people who achieved success in the first half of their life, what is half? 40, 50, 60, you know, some of us at 70, okay? In the first half of their life, get so disenchanted with the success and are still, after having this amazing worldly success, still so dissatisfied with their lives and looking for meaning and purpose. And so the book is, is broken into two concepts. There's the concept of success. And then he says, after half time, which is a midlife crisis in his book, we, we press into significance. And what is significance? Significance is now, this is not just about you and amassing fame and fortune for yourself, but when you are now literally investing in others in some way, shape, or form. And the one book of his that I, wrote, uh, that I actually bought, wasn't a special, was, was Halftime Testimonies. And these are testimonies, and it was the same old story about some person who achieved worldly success, fame, and fortune in some shape or form, but then 
basically decided to invest, for example, I mean the one story I remember where a guy had come from a very disadvantaged high school and he decided after he made his millions to now go back to that high school and he opened up a scholarship program for, for students in his high school back there and he was investing his money in there and he found great significance investing in students who had potential in his high school. You know, and the stories abound, you know, those kind of stories. But folks, this is, this is the gospel story, you know, is that firstly, I mean, what is success? Surely success is what the Lord thinks about you as the number one requirement for how we assess our lives. I don't care what you think about me. The question is, what does my Jesus think about me? And what does your Jesus think about you? Wherever you are in life, you're a student, you're married, you're working, you're retired. The question is, you're a success if you delight your Father wherever you are in life. Let's just settle that one. Are you making your Father happy? You're a roaring success, amen? Whether you're unemployed or a student or a scholar or retired, amen? So this concept of dying to live is so biblical and I want to unpack it. This morning Stella had a word just of, of the Lord giving me something for this weekend that, that, would, that would just require unpacking. I thought this message was just for Friday. And, and just since Friday the Lord's just been saying there's more. So we're going to unpack this some more. So remember when we looked at our relationship series on the next slide, I brought up this term sacrifice, and, I, and I, I'm not going to unpack it. I'm saying dying to live equals sacrifice. I want to unpack that word sacrifice because it's one of those words where, where, you know, for many years I was like, I don't like that word. <laughs> it sounds like a painful word. I've come to realize it is just so beautiful. And I believe in the phrase dying to live is the word sacrifice. And when you understand what it is, it's like, Lord, I actually want to do this. I actually want to do this. Man, if anybody's sitting here and you're a parent, you know what? You signed up for some sacrifice. I'm not going to unpack what it looks like, but it is. Being a parent is a huge sacrifice. We'll unpack it as we go. So I said when we were doing our relationship series and looking at the four uh, Greek words for love, the agape love, I define it like this, the steadfast, sacrificial God type of love. Now we looked at steadfastness and what that looked at three weeks ago. But I want to unpack this, this word sacrificial. It's a key element to God type of love. The love that we love the unlovable with. It's sacrificial because you may never get it back. And I want to submit to you, you know, what do you do? I mean, what do you do when you love somebody and you invest in them and etc. And they just, they just turn on you in, in whatever that looks like. What do you do? Folks, that is sacrifice. You know, that what, what was the source of the love with which you loved that person? If it was God's love, you had no deficit. You personally had no deficit because that love came from Him and you poured it out in that person's life. You had no deficit. You are, your account is very much positive because the Lord says we will get rewards for anything we do in the name of the Lord. So you win, no matter what, how the person reacts to your, your ways of trying to show them love. And so I actually want to come to, remember on Friday I said we're going to do three scriptures and three books. We never got to the last book. We're getting to the last book, folks. So well done for coming. I know you guys wanted to find out what is the next book. And the next book is, is this book called A Hundred Years From Now by Pastor Steve Murrell. Now he heads up 
um, the Every Nation, which is the international network of churches we are part of. And he wrote this book a few years ago entitled 100 Years From Now. And, and the question was, he was, we're a network of churches, a movement, etc. What, what would we have to focus on to make sure that there would still be Every Nation churches around 100 years from now? And that was his question. And in this book, he endeavors to answer that. And he goes through, for example, he unpacks the Every Nation mission statement. We exist to honor God and advance His kingdom by building Christ-centered, spirit-empowered, and socially responsible churches in every nation. He unpacks every aspect of that and why that is important that we committed to that in terms of if we want to be around in 100 years from now. He unpacks the every nation, uh, five core values, etc. But at the end of the book... And literally, I want to focus just on the last chapter. He, he highlights four aspects. And, and, and they not found, these aspects are not found in the Every Nation mission or values, etc. And I was listening to uh, Kevin York, who was teaching on this. And he went to Pastor Steve and he said, Why do you have these four aspects? And, and in the end of the book, he, he titled it uh, four, uh, what? Cultures. four Cultures that, that We Have to Have. And one of them was this word sacrifice, this term sacrifice. And Pastor Steve Miles said this. He said, these are four elements that he had the deep conviction that if we didn't build on those, there's no ways we would be around a hundred years from now. And one of them is this word sacrifice. Folks, if nothing great in life is ever achieved without sacrifice, be it a business, be it a marriage, be it a life, I don't care what, what you want to build. Whatever you build is going to require sacrifice. And if at any point in your life you desire, desire, decide, I have sacrificed enough, boom, I want to say right there, you may not fulfill your dream or whatever you're achieving to build in your life. Because it's always going to require sacrifice. And so this is what I want to unpack. So if we go on to the next slide, you're saying, where's this in the Bible? This scripture in Luke 9, this is the scripture where Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Now, I'm reading it in the Passion Bible, which puts it slightly differently. But how many of you have that, you know, that phrase, you know, take up your cross and follow me? How many of you have, have mused on that and like, I wonder what that really means? I find the Passion Bible on this very, very, very helpful. It says, oh yeah, Luke 9 verse 23 to 24. If you truly desire to be my disciple, you must disown your own life completely. Embrace my cross as your own and surrender to my ways. For if you choose self-sacrifice, there's that word sacrifice, giving up your lives for my glory you will embark on a discovery of more and more of true life. But if you choose to keep your lives for yourselves, you will lose what you try to keep. Yo, that is a paradox, eh? Dying to live. I, I was like, that's what that scripture is saying, dying to live. And there's that word sacrifice right in the middle. The word sacrifice, the word surrender. And so... What, is, what does sacrifice mean? On, on, on the next slide, I've just given a little definition, a simple little definition. Sacrifice is the surrender of something valuable 
for the sake of something having higher value. For the sake of something that has higher value. Folks, honoring and glorifying God, does that have higher value than, than just about anything else on this side, this side of, of heaven? Absolutely. You know, this morning's worship, we were singing about honoring and glorifying God. And what I was hearing was a resounding amen from this congregation. I was like, I love worshiping God with people who want to honor and glorify God. What, what a privilege. I can't think of a, of, of a more wonderful group of people to worship with than people who are living for the honor and the glory of God. And so, and so this is a very simple definition. But folks, this is, this is I believe, what, what, what dying to live is really about. In Romans 12 verse 1, if you're looking for another scripture about sacrifice, it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. <laughs> the New King James Bible says this is just reasonable service. This is not unreasonable. You know, a living sacrifice. We're not asking you guys to do something unusual. This is normal for us Christians, okay? This is normal Christian life, to be a living sacrifice. Now, now again, I actually believe there's another, another paradox right over there, living sacrifice. I'm talking about dying to live. How about a living sacrifice? Because so often, I mean, look, many people would say, you know, what is sacrifice? You know, kind of, you know, in the Bible, how many times don't you come across where they go to sacrifice and it's like killing an animal and burning it and people think well you know sacrifice is is you know burn an animal burn some grain i mean sacrifices abound you'd be hard-pressed to read your bible and not find that sacrifice is quite a key element but the beauty of of course remember all those sacrifices were pointing towards the ultimate sacrifice of jesus and so we don't sacrifice animals etc etc but, folks, we are meant to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. The example that he gave when he died on the cross is that we now live like this. Amen? It's just so beautiful. But I want to I come to something that I, that I stumbled upon. I'd never heard of this prayer before. And on the next slide, John Wesley's covenant prayer. And I'm going to tell you about it before we read it. So let me just explain. I don't know how many of you have heard of John Wesley's covenant prayer. I hadn't. I was reading a book a while ago. And this was a book by a pastor. And he, he framed this prayer because at his ordination, he was, he was part of four pastors that were being, being set in place to take over the leadership of a church. And this was the prayer that was prayed over him, John Wesley's prayer. When I thought, okay, this, this is it's a powerful prayer. And I thought, okay, you know, this is a, like a high-level prayer. You know, like when you're getting ordained into full-time ministry, etc. That's kind of where this prayer is used. And then I thought, but I wonder what the history of this prayer really is. And I went to go scratch and I went to go look. And the first history of John Wesley. Now, John Wesley lived in the 1700s, started what we now know as the Methodist Church, the Wesleyan movement, etc. Literally thousands of churches across the world. Literally changed the, the, the shape of our world in so many ways. And historians uh, believe that if it wasn't for the preaching of John Wesley and the, the, the Methodist movement, England would have gone through a revolution like France did. 
but the moral, the moral fiber of England was changed through the righteous preaching of this man. And so I wanted to know a bit about this prayer. So this prayer was first recorded, him praying this prayer, in 1750. But it wasn't, and he gave credit to another man of God from the 1600s. And I, and I just love that, the, 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 the historical depth of this prayer. In 1780, he did something quite amazing. He instituted this prayer in the New Year's service of 1780. And that practice of praying this prayer at the New Year's service continued, folks, for 156 years until 1936. They stopped praying this prayer. I don't know why they stopped praying this prayer. It's such a powerful prayer. For 156 years, in a Methodist church, you could go to a New Year's service, and, and I don't know, maybe there are some that still do it. I, I'm just not connected with that world. But it's such a powerful prayer. But this was the thing. It was not in, used in an ordination service. This was a prayer that was prayed at the beginning of every year for everybody in the church. You and me, the children, the grannies, the grandpas, moms and dads, they all prayed this prayer. This was the prayer with which they went into every year for 156 years. And I was like, whoa, okay. Today, it's like, okay, we got to ordain somebody. Let's pull out this prayer. But 200 years ago, this was the normal prayer that everybody prayed. How can a movement shape the moral fabric of the world like the Methodist movement did. Well, they prayed powerful, scary prayers. Amen? Scary in the best possible way. Okay? I'm not saying scary as in reverential scary, not fearful scary. Okay, let's get to it. So what is this prayer? You guys can't wait to hear what this prayer is. Here we go. Okay, let's go. It says, I'm no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now... Glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. A normal prayer that was prayed on New Year's Eve for 156 years. And the guy who was sharing this prayer in the book I read, at his ordination. Let me tell you his story. This prayer rocked him because he didn't realize the significance of this prayer. And, and what happened? Let me tell you his story. So he was the pastor of a, of a vibrant church in a smaller city in the U.S. And he then got called to, uh, to basically come and be part of four guys who were going to be taking over the leadership of a significant church on the east coast of America. I'm not going to say where. You may know him and even know the senior pastor. This prayer he prayed in 2007 at, at the ordination. He was one of four guys who were called 
to take over from the senior pastor who was stepping down. And they were going to multiply this, it was a mega church, like 5,000 member church, into four different congregations with four leaders. This prayer was prayed over him. He prayed this prayer at his ordination service, 2007. It was going to be a year's then transition before uh, the four congregations were multiplied. In that next year, a lot of things happened, and they just realized that multiplying to four was actually not viable for various economic reasons, and I don't know all the ins and outs. He didn't give it. And they decided they were just going to multiply into three congregations, which meant one of the four guys who had been ordained would have to not step into that role. And it was him. He said he, um, he resigned. Uh, he had to resign. I mean, I don't know the ins and outs. I'm just giving the headlines as I read it from him, the guy who wrote it. But he said those three months before he resigned were the hardest, darkest times of his life. Because he had been leading a vibrant church in another city in America. He gave up everything, moved to a tiny little flat in the city where they were staying, gave up everything, and it was the death of a dream and a vision and, and, and he'd sacrificed, the family had sacrificed already so much to come to the city to take, help take over the leadership of this church. And then he went back to this prayer. And he realized what he had prayed only in processing it afterwards. And I'm going to put up, uh, Lucinda, the first, just go on, next slide. I've underlined some of the things in here that he didn't even realize what he prayed. And I've unlined these, how many, five phrases. I don't know if you realize, but not many Christians today pray prayers like this. They pray the prayers that are to the left of what I've underlined. He had prayed, put me to suffering, laid aside for you, brought low for you, let me be empty, let me have nothing. And after a year, he said, Every one of those aspects of that prayer had come to pass in his life. Folks, the book that I read of him came out of that. He looks back, I mean now that is, what, 15 years ago. He wrote a book out of that place. He has absolutely no regret that that side of the prayer came to pass in his life. Today, he's pastoring a vibrant church in another city in America. And he says, God has restored, really, literally, he says it's, a, it's, a, it's like a Job story, where God has restored so much more than what he felt he lost. Was it easy? No. I mean, most people will pray, put me to doing, let me employed for you, exalted for you, let me be full, let me have all things. I mean, that's, I mean honestly, if you listen to some of the prayers people pray today, it's, it's just the, the, the left-hand side of that, of that thing. It's the right-hand side, I'm like, hmm. But I want to say, this is dying to live. <laughs> you know why I was drawn to the, his book and his story? Because that was our story. We were, we were called, 2001, to go and take over a, a His People Church in Austria. The pastors were coming back to South Africa. And so we went to Cape Town, 
moved to Cape Town. I resigned my job. I was working as an engineer in PE with our two little children, age three and one. We moved to Cape Town. And um, so we were told we were going to join, come on staff. And uh, six months before, we, we were told to get there in the middle of uh, July, July 2001. Uh, when I eventually got hold of the the guys in Cape Town and said, okay, I've resigned my job, we're coming, can you just confirm I'm coming on staff, you know, what sort of salary, you know, etc. And I was told, no, sorry, there's, there's no salary for you. You've got, to, you've got to trust God to provide for your needs. I'd been working for 10 years as an engineer, civil engineer, two children, and we had to go into faith mode. <laughs> and the test means that God provided the Bible says, David says, I've been old, I've been young and now I'm old, and I've never seen the children of the righteous forsaken or begging bread. And we had food on the table every day in that year that I didn't have a salary. And, and folks, God did so much in that time. You know, it's one of those things like, I, I would, wouldn't want to do that over, and I wouldn't want to wish that on anybody but I'm so glad that we went through those times because we are so much better because of it. So I want to I go on with this uh, from this prayer. And I want to I put up Galatians 2 verse 20 again. Our key theme scripture. And I've underlined a different part of the scripture. I've underlined the part that it says... The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That is the way we live as Christians now. And in Romans 1.17, this scripture alone has literally rocked the world. This, I say this because first Augustine in the 300s was rocked by the scripture. Then Martin Luther, this is the scripture that changed Martin Luther around, the, the, the Great Reformation. This was the kernel of truth that transformed his life. And John Wesley himself became born again when he read Martin Luther's commentary on Romans and, and, he, and he discovered this truth. This is how you shall live. Because Martin Luther thought it's all about trying to please God by doing stuff for God. He literally, he went to Rome and went to St. Paul's Cathedral and was crawling up and down the steps trying to please God, trying to find favor with God. And he just could not find peace with God. And he read in Romans, the just shall live by faith. And he literally describes this glorious light entering his soul and the burden of dead works lifting off him where he realized trusting in the finished work of the cross is the life that we now live. So in, 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 in Galatians it says, the life I now live by in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And I, and I was like, so often we just emphasize that aspect and we forget the dying aspect. And I was reading the other day, I was reading Hebrews, which is the chapter where we list the, Hebrew, the heroes of faith. And we can just go to the next slide. The heroes of faith. It's the faith chapter. You want to read about heroes of faith and what faith looks like? It's the go-to chapter. I've often ministered on it. The other day, I was just reading it through. And I was struck by the change in verse 35. Verse 35, halfway through, is like... I like what the writer of Hebrews is doing. It's amen, preach it, brother. Don't put it up yet. I'll, I'll tell you when. 
I, I mean, you know, most uh, up to verse up to verse 35 and a half, I'm like, amen, preacher, I like this, this is going well. Verse 35, it's like, he's going this way, and it's like, woo, where are you going now? I thought faith looks like this. What are you doing? You're messing with me. Come on. So what are we talking about? I'm going to read verse 32 to 35 and a half. And you guys will say, amen, you love this stuff. We love this stuff. I love this stuff. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. Don't go on. And then. Now, folks, how many of you say, man, if this is all that faith is about, I am a super faith hero. I mean, I'm going to print a t-shirt. Just call me super faith. I'm, I'm in it. I mean, this is victorious stuff. I want to say that's absolutely what, what faith looks like. Yeah. But there's another side to faith. Are you ready what happens halfway through verse 35? I think the guys who put the numbers in, they should have moved. I mean, why change like halfway through 35? Okay. Look what it goes on to say after verse 35. It says this. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Folks, they, they died. That's what it says. Okay? Often, uh, sorry, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. There's a faith chapter. How many of you here you say, Pastor, I do faith. I'm super faith. Okay? This is super faith stuff, guys. Verse 37. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Folks, don't, don't think. Stop thinking right now. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Verse 38. Of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Wow! I'm like, what happened to that oak in 35? He was on a roll. I mean, he was anointed up to halfway through verse 35. And then what happened to him? I'm joking, folks. This is all the anointing of the Holy Spirit. This is dying to live. This is faith, folks. How do you get through some of that stuff? Folks, the persecuted church is a reality. There are Christians today, folks, that are experiencing some of that stuff. They have just as much faith in their Jesus as you do today, trusting God for that mega promotion. Amen? It's the same faith in the same God. <coughs> I mean, uh, Pastor Steve Merle was just in his book, uh, this book here, the last chapter. He tells the story of an Iranian pastor in 2010. I remember the story well. It made world news headlines because he was arrested for his faith. He had planted, uh, his, his, his wife had come to the Lord and he just came to an every nation church just to kind of pick her up and somebody said, can I, the pastor said, can I pray for you? And he was like, I mean, how do you turn down prayer? You know? And he was born Muslim. It's a Muslim country, etc. 
And the pastor came and prayed for him. And he said, as the pastor prayed over him, he felt a peace come over him that he didn't know. It was, he was like something, something touched me. He didn't say anything, but he started coming to church. He, he, he said, I, I don't know when I surrendered my life to Jesus, but within that month, at some point, I found myself totally yielded to Jesus. He went to go visit his father in Iran, and when he was in Iran, he sensed the call of God to Iran, went to Iran, planted a church, one every nation church, eventually had five every nation churches, and there were just, God was just, it was growing, and you know, just so many things, so many other people, God would encounter in supernatural ways, dreams and visions and healings, etc. I mean, to break through in that culture, you just need the supernatural power of God. And then he was arrested by the security police, um, and he was basically put in jail. And it made world headlines. Uh, I don't know how I remember the news stories. And he was basically in Iran, if you, and this is what the law, if you're born a Muslim, if your dad's a Muslim, and you convert to another religion, you are, can, can be put to death. That's the law. So you can't convert. So he's in, he's in court. And he went through the first court, found him guilty, and there was some sort of appeal. He went to a second court. He was eventually in the highest court, been in jail for three months. And he's praying and trusting God for a miracle, reading the stories about Saul and Paul and Silas in jail, etc. And in that last court case, the judge asked him, was your father a Muslim? Yes. Um, do you fear God? His answer was, absolutely and I, and, I, and I pray that I would fear him more. And the judge asked him these questions which, which a Muslim person would tick off. But, and, I, and I forget, and you can read in the book, but these questions like, do you fear God? Absolutely, we fear God as Christians. We reverence him, we honor him, we are submitted to him, absolutely. Our fear is a reverence, not a cowering fear, uh, a cowering fear. You know, the, the questions the judge asked, he actually could answer them. And the judge concluded that he hadn't actually forsaken his faith. And the judge set him free. The security police, the head of security police, jumped up when the judge made the judgment and said, you can't do that. He's, he's a pastor, he's a Christian. The judge said, I don't believe he's actually forsaken his faith. He's still reverent, re, he's still got great reverence for God. And he was set free. It was a total miracle. But I want to say, folks, you know, this stuff, this stuff, this was written in Bible days, but that stuff still happens. And that is still the zone of faith. That is still the zone of faith. So many people just want the victory aspect. And, I, and, I, and what I did for you, I put up a little table just to highlight this. On the next slide, I did a table. On the left, I did... What comes before verse 35 in Hebrews, and, and you could actually put pretty much from verse 1. I mean, there's phenomenal things he's going through in Hebrews, all the things that happened in the Old Testament by great men and women of God by faith. They got their victory. They got the outcome. They were set free. They were delivered. They had victory over their enemies. It is victorious faith. Folks, faith does give us victory. And that's the section. Seeing the results of faith, the sides of eternity. I love it. I'm signed up for it. I preach it. It's for sure. Faith gives us victory. 
But on the other side, there's enduring faith, where we remain in faith even though we're not seeing the victory, even though we don't get the breakthrough, even though we're not getting healed, even though my wife is not falling pregnant, even though my business is not doing well, I'm still in faith. It's called enduring faith. Amen? And remember this, the scripture there, that they didn't see their fulfillment. There are some faith seeds that I'm convinced it's because we're meant to be a multi-generational people. Because your spiritual sons and daughters are meant to carry on what's in your heart. Because what you trust in God for is bigger than just your own generation. Amen. And so victorious faith and enduring faith, it's all faith. It's both sides of the same coin. Amen. And I don't know why. Sometimes you pray and somebody's instantly healed. And sometimes we've got to endure in faith and keep trusting God for their healing. I wish everybody got healed instantly. I wish all my prayers were answered instantly. But folks, do you know what happens in the soul of a man or woman where they have that Midas touch? You know what the Midas touch? You know the story about Midas. King Midas wanted this wish and he coveted gold and he just loved gold and he used to go into his chambers and count all his gold. And one day, whatever, he gets this wish and, the, and, and, and I don't know, was it a genie? Okay, okay, we, you know, I talk genie over here and then some people are going to say, did you know the pastor was preaching about a genie? Okay, I'm not, I'm telling you a story about a genie, okay? <laughs> In the story, it's, uh, you know, genie comes and gives him one wish and he says, I want gold. Yeah, he says, I want, please, that anything I touch, touch turns to gold. And the genie says, you got your wish. And immediately he's going around the room where he is and he's touching everything. He's turning to gold and he's, oh, he's just so happy. And the door opens and his beautiful daughter comes running in. And she runs to him and she dives into his arms. And she turns into a gold statue as she touches her. Do you want a faith that is always victorious? What does it do to the soul of a man or woman where they have Midas faith? Where it's just to get things from God. You know, because the victorious faith, and it's biblical, and I love it, and I believe it, God gives us victory. Amen. But there are people who just preach that side of faith. They don't preach an enduring faith. So what happens firstly when you don't get your victory, when the person's not healed and you don't get that business contract and you don't pass that exam and that beautiful babe doesn't say yes to you when you propose to her and your, and your faith is not doing victory. Is, does faith not work? Or is it that God is maybe protecting you from a prideful arrogance that just undermines the very gospel that we are meant to live out. And now, are you really honoring God by your life? Or are you just showing off your faith? <laughs> I'm a faith hot rod. <laughs> you know, I can do anything. I believe sometimes God not answering our prayers is the biggest grace God gives us in our lives. You know, we wanted to go to Austria to take over a church in Austria. Jen and I have reflected. It was more than 20 years ago now. We've often reflected and say, praise God. That our faith and our prayers to go to Austria and take over that His people church didn't come to pass. Praise God we're in Peter Maritzburg and not in Salzburg. It, in the time, it doesn't make sense. But folks, we had to endure for two tough years in Cape Town. We moved six times in those two years because we, didn't have, we gave away all our furniture. We had no furniture, so we were house-sitting. 
And you know, house sitting, we, said, we have house sitting. One lady went overseas for three months, sat in a house, and then she came back, and we had to move out. Then we were in another missionary house for six months, and then we moved out. Then for, six, for two years, we stayed in six different houses where we had to borrow furniture, and our lounge suite was some white plastic, uh, uh, yeah, the white plastic chairs because somebody lent us plastic chairs. What's wrong with white plastic chairs in your lounge? Please tell me, okay? I prefer a nice lounge suite and a comfy couch, but, you know, if all you've got is white plastic chairs, then that's what you use. Folks, victorious faith and enduring faith. At the bottom there, oh, wait, before you were, sorry, Yanda. Victorious faith is the thrill of victory. I wish all my prayers were answered, and yours. But enduring faith endures the agony of defeat. Randy Clark spoke at his healing school, which he went to in 2008. Amazing teaching. He said, if you are wanting to trust God for healing people's lives, you have to embrace both aspects of the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Can you, have you got enduring faith that can still trust God even when your prayers are not answered? And the question is this, on the bottom there, which is the bigger test? Which is the bigger test? Is the bigger test having a victorious faith where all your prayers are just answered? Or the bigger test, enduring faith, where you are having a couple of setbacks when your prayers are not getting answered. Folks, I actually want to submit to you that for most Christians, for most Christians, just having a victorious faith is a bigger test. Just having amazing breakthrough after breakthrough after breakthrough is not the kind of Christian that authentically represents God and glorifies Him. I want to submit to you, if you don't experience enduring faith, in my experience, bringing glory to, to God with your whole life is not the fruit of people who just have victorious faith. And I actually want to, I want to close there. I want to close there. And I, I, want, to, I want to close. Lucinda, have we got the, the Wesley's prayer? I couldn't remember. I want to, I want to close... And I want us to pray John Wesley's covenant prayer. <laughs> Let me say, if you dare. <laughs> it rhymes. I'm a poet and I didn't even know it. Pray his prayer if you dare. No, and I, and I want to say this authentically. Folks, remember the Lord answers the prayers of our heart. It's a prayer that is saying, God, I want victorious faith and I want enduring faith. Whatever comes, I'm going to trust you. Whether I see instant breakthrough whether I've got to trust God for years, like Abram and Sarah, to trust God for 25 years to see the promise come. Or whether we get pregnant instantly. Have you got victorious faith? Have you got... So, I mean, some of us just have enduring faith and you, you've lost faith for victory. Come on, guys. God is the God of victory. Amen. Sometimes we're like, come on, we're trusting God for victory. Don't give up your hope for victory. Amen. We want breakthroughs as well. But I want, us, I want us to close. We're going to pray John Wesley's prayer. And I'm going to ask you, maybe you can stand. There's no compulsion. Do not pray because I'm whatever. I'm challenging you or anything. You pray this if you want to. Nobody's looking at you. God's looking at the prayer of your heart. Amen. And I want to just say afterwards, on Friday we did these stations. Um, stations of the cross. We have communion in front here. There's the cross station. We've, we've left everything up because we were like, maybe some people are still wanting to go and just encounter God in these spaces. So there's stations here in front. You can read the instructions and just engage that.
if you want to. We're just going to leave it over there. But let's stand and let's pray John Wesley's covenant prayer. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this message. For more information, please visit our website at www.hispeoplepmb.co.za And for more of our messages, visit our YouTube and SoundCloud channels as well as other podcast platforms. If you would like to contact us, please email us at hispeoplepmb at gmail.com or send a message to 61 0877. To join us for in-person services, visit us at 154 Burkett Road, Scottsville, Peter Maritzburg. We hope to see you soon. God bless you.